VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, October the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. You know him. He's the producer of the program. Pick up the phone and speak with David to get in the queue and on the air to discuss whatever's on your mind. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Are you following the baseball? Dave asked me earlier. I'm following. I, I love a bit of baseball. Today in history, 1992 was the first World Series game played outside the United States, of course at the Sky Dome, where the Toronto Blue Jays defeated the Atlanta Braves that night 3-2 and of course went on to win the World Series, their first of two, first game played outside the States and in the world of baseball. You know, you throw around some of the iconic names, Babe Ruth or Hank Aaron, Nolan Ryan, whoever you want to put into that, that status of being an icon of the sport. Born 91 years ago today, Mickey Mantle. The Mick, number seven, born in Oklahoma. He was a Yankee his entire 18-year career. He was broke up all the time. That's one thing about Mickey Mantle. He was injured a lot in his 18-year career. Still, 536 home runs, a career batting average of 298. Generally regarded as the best switch hitter in baseball history. He led the league four times in home runs, seven World Series titles. The Yankees do a great job in celebrating their greats. It's really cool stuff. And, of course, Mickey Mantle's baseball cards. There's a 1952 Topps card that sold for $5.2 million. One baseball card, $5.2 million. All right. A couple of interesting ones on the local front. I fire, I fire, I follow this Twitter account. It's called All Hockey Cards. And what they do is they just post a picture of an old hockey player, mostly goaltenders, and they say, who is this goalie? And yesterday they posted a, a one of a guy playing for Detroit, skating around, no helmet on, of course, the old goalie gear, number 31. And one of the responses came from Doug Grant. That would be me, 1975-76. So our very own Dougie Grant, who played in the NHL, of course. And that was his picture that they posted. That would be me. And a boy, Doug, he's a great fella. Love Doug. Believe it or not, there's no men's volleyball team at Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador, which I think is atrocious. But anyway, so if you want to play on into your post-secondary years, men volleyball players have to try to find a gig and a game somewhere else. There's a handful of players from O'Donnell that are getting to play in the AUAA, and one of them is going to get his uh, first start to play some university ball this weekend. His name is Patrick Beresford. He's a six-foot-six hitter from O'Donnell. Bunch of guys from there. He joins another couple of his Canada game teammates, Derek Yeckham and Tyler Wiseman, playing for the Dalhousie Tigers. They open up their season versus Laval, the Rouge d'Or where my son Jack got to play his university ball. I had to throw that in there. He knows I did. Uh, congratulations, good luck to all the participants and the patrons of the 33rd Annual St. John's International Women's Film Festival, which kicked off last night with a screening of I Like Movies at the Cineplex in at the Avalon Mall. So... It's been on the go since 1989. I'm not so sure, unless you follow the industry, just how important this particular festival is. Been running since 89. There's 43 films in the queue for the participants and the viewers this year. Lots of easy ways to find out the information about where and when you can catch some of the films, shorts and otherwise. It's renowned internationally. And it's the longest-running Canadian women's film festival. So congratulations and good luck to all involved. Okay. Good morning to the folks on the southwest coast, where post-Viona cleanup continues. I, 
I can't tell you just how many emails and pictures that I get through the course of a day or a week with, you know, the before and afters. Here's where my house was, and here's where it now is no longer. And then the piles of debris and the dumpsters overflowing and the trauma that people have experienced and the decisions that they have to make about how, where, and when to rebuild is absolutely mind-boggling. But now we have some numbers to consider about the damages associated with uh, Hurricane Fiona right across Atlantic Canada. There's a company that does these estimates for the insurance bureaus called Catastrophe Indices and Quantification Incorporated. They estimate the Fiona damage at $660 million, the most expensive, insofar as damages go, natural disaster ever in Atlantic Canada. Prior to that, it was Hurricane Juan in 2003, uh, cost them $192 million. That's according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Most of the flooding and the houses swept away, we do know that the insurance companies aren't covering it. Most of the damages will be left to be picked up by the government. But $660 million, and here's just some numbers to consider about just how severe the weather has been. And you can uh, assign it to whatever you see fit, but these are real numbers. This is exactly what's happening in this country with natural disasters and insurance payouts. Fiona is the 10th most expensive natural disaster in Canada's history. Number one, of course, uh, 2016, the Fort McMurray wildfires, $4 billion worth of damage. Then, let's see, uh, five of the 10 most expensive have happened in the last five years. British Columbia flooding in 2021 valued or the estimates of damage at $675 million. The 2020 hailstorm in Alberta, can remember those pictures? Like softballs coming out of the sky at $1.2 billion. Severe weather events have quadrupled in this country since 2008. It used to be the annual average between 2001 and 2010, annual damages at about $632 million, now $2 billion a year. And so while many of the insurance policies will not see the coverage applied to the folks who paid their premiums, the premiums are still going to go up, right? Those annual increases for insurance damages is really quite something. Here's the breakdown across Atlantic Canada. Nova Scotia damages in excess of $385 million. PEI, $220 million. New Brunswick, $30 million. Quebec, $11 million. And Newfoundland and Labrador, around $7 million in damage. And if you are on the southwest coast and you'd like to speak about what's happening, how you're feeling, what the decisions are looking like and feeling like, we're happy to have you on the program. Here this morning, of course we are. All right. And insofar as costs of everything goes, of course, we get a mid-month or late-month update to what inflation looked like in the month prior. Economists were hoping to see inflation ease to around 6.7%. It came in at 6.9%. That's three months in a row it has these, albeit modestly. It peaked out, hopefully it peaked out, at 8.1% in June. Of course, that's the 40-year high. The biggest thing regarding inflation for many of us would be the fact that food inflation continues to skyrocket. It's up again. It's at 11.4% now. It's the fastest growth in price increases since August of 1981. Here's some of the things we find on the aisles and the associated upswing in price. Cereals up almost 18%. Baked goods about 15%. Fresh fruit almost 13%. Fresh vegetables up about 12%. Dairy 9.7%. Meat prices up about 7.5%. So while inflation is easing, now we 
can look at grocery store profits. I think we're going to see some interesting numbers when you compare input and operating costs with revenue and profit. We'll see exactly what it looks like. If you listen to a fellow like Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, who I find to be a trusted voice, he says we're not going to see the kind of excess profits that people think, but let's see the numbers. It's important. Then you add in the price of diesel for transportation. You add in the input costs for farmers of food, feed, fertilizer. Then all the things that we have zero control over at this moment in time, whether it be the war in Ukraine and global supply chain. But one thing that also factors into the prices in the grocery store is let's say there is a product that ends up on the shelf here from Central or South America, makes its way into the United States, then gets priced in American dollars, and then a weak Canadian dollar sees what? A big whopping spike in the price of that particular product. Fresh fruits, for instance, throw that in on the issue. But food inflation is a scary, scary issue. And where does it end? Nobody knows. There's one thing, and I guess good news, albeit it comes with higher interest rates, by and large, uh, Bank of Canada maneuvers. But food continues to get away from us. And yes, we can toss in whatever is a PR stunt or in an effort to help. Loblaw's freezing the price on some 1,500 products. But, you know... If the prices come down a bit, does that mean that the price freeze will be adjusted to see the lowering, natural lower cost of some of these goods? Anyway, you want to take it on. You know I talk about food all the time, but pretty important stuff. All right, stick with the big numbers. Yesterday, we were given the fall fiscal update by the Minister of Finance, Sivan Cody. And there's some good news and there's some confusing news. And there is what people might refer to as some political spin. Let's get down to it. So the forecast for the deficit for the, in the 2022 budget was $351 million. There's been a reversal of some $830 million, meaning now the province is saying there's a surplus of $479 million. Basically, with an influx and an uptick in personal corporate tax and, of course, oil revenues. They had budgeted an average of $86 per barrel. It's around 102 at this moment in time, so far as the average goes. And every dollar averaged above 86 means an additional $13 million into the provincial coffer. So there's nothing really surprising about the optimistic turnaround in the deficit number. Okay, but also inside of this is the projected cost of borrowing. So from $2.7 billion to $1.8 billion. So I think people ask the obvious question is, how can we have a surplus and still have a borrowing need of $1.8 billion? Some of this is an accrual accounting particular issue. It does not mean any debt refinancing is going away. It's still there. So while we will have a posted surplus insofar as deficit goes, the long-term net debt is still around $16 billion, and yes, there will indeed be borrowing. So people ask the obvious question, because we're not all accountants, right? Is how can you pretend or say there's a surplus all the while still required borrowing of $1.8 billion? So, fine. And, you know, I'm trying to get someone to come on and explain it much better than I can, but there is a difference between the three. Debt refinancing, borrowing and deficits. The deficit is basically a forecast of what the budget deficit would have looked like. There's always going to be a lag in understanding what federal collection of taxes are, provincial collection of taxes are, and of course the fiscal year ends March 31, I think is the date. So there's some differences, albeit some of them might have some ideological overlap and some accrual accounting practices included. So there's the big numbers. Surplus now, surplus, okay, $479 million, but yet still there will indeed be the need to borrow 
and the net debt at 16 billion. So, you know, it is always good news when we see an increase in the price of oil as it pertains to the provincial government and their coffers. It does come with a cost to individuals because we all know what the increase in price has meant, whether it be for a variety of different products and or eventually refining of gasoline, diesel, and otherwise. But it does still speak to the fact that when we get a fall fiscal update or any potential fiscal update, the first thing we go to, and it's not me, the first thing that the government will always go to is just how much revenue is associated with oil, right? It's the first time in a decade we've seen any sort of surplus, but it's basically because of oil. So there's some good or bad news associated with that. Good news for the province, not so much for individuals, necessarily. It also comes with saying the quiet parts out loud, regardless of how much we talk about diversification. We still do have a firm reliance on oil. That's not to couch it as being good, bad, or indifferent. It's just the fact. So... How and where the diversification is real, because oil's not going away today. It's not. We know it's not. And there's still some continued hope that it will be part of fueling the province's finances. But how do we make sure that if and when the inevitable comes, where oil might not be as strong as it is today, because we know it's an artificial number that's manipulated by a bunch of different forces. For instance, like the Saudis and the OPEC, they will decrease production simply to manipulate the price per barrel. So it is not predictable, never has been. It's volatile, as we all know. So the diversification piece it still should be a big part of the conversation. Nothing but nothing is going to in full replace oil royalties. It's not. But we have to be really better prepared for when the inevitable once again happens, where oil might not be as strong as we need for the provincial government matters. Production will always be a variable that we have very little control of as individuals and or as a provincial government. So if you want to talk about the fall fiscal update and some of the potential confusion therein, we can talk about it. And also the future fund. So the government was able to use some $107 million of oil royalties plus a one-time $50 million injection into the future fund. All right, so it's going to be used to pay down the debt. So the question immediately will be, why not just apply that 107 to the debt directly as opposed to into the future fund? It's a good idea to use absolutely to pay down the debt, but for what they're calling extraordinary circumstances. What that really means, I don't really know. They also go on to say it could be used for strategic investments. What does that mean? I'm not entirely sure. It'd be nice to have some examples. Like, is Fiona, for instance, an extraordinary circumstance where that $30 million would have come out of the future fund? I don't know, but it'd be nice to know a little bit more about a said future fund and how it works. Of course, I'm a five-person or a six-person independent board of trustees that should be answering to the House of Assembly versus simply to the minister's office because the future may indeed be seeing the liberals, the Tories, or the NDP, or whoever in the seat of government, and it'd be nice to have a real clear understanding. And of course, contributing to the future fund is any sale of a government asset over the value of $5 million. I would love to know more about that. Maybe it it seems to me I'm in the the minority there, but anywho. And yesterday, the plan for the federal government to see a one-time six-month reflective bump in the GST has received royal assent. The checks should start flowing around the 4th of November. So 11 million Canadians will be Waiting for that one. All right. And this one, of course, I talked about it one day last week, and we'll throw it in there again. It's about the fact now that the retailers will be allowed, not all will, but some absolutely will, pass along 
what they were covering for costs, operational costs, would be credit card surcharges. So now some 2.4% is the ceiling that they can pass on to customers, on consumers. But here's where it gets just a little bit more salty, right? I mean, as if the credit card companies are struggling. Yeah. So the 2.4%, they pass it on to me, and then they, we pay tax after it's been added. So not only am I paying potentially the 2.4%, I'm paying tax on it as well. So it's bigger than that number. It's frustrating, but now they're going to be able to do it. It's absolutely a cost recovery mechanism that they're going to take advantage of. I don't know who will, but many absolutely will do exactly that. All right, a couple of quick ones. And this one is one that I think is getting a lot of attention for a variety of reasons. And it's the premier and his father, Senator George Fury, going salmon fishing at a luxury resort in Labrador called the Rifflin Hitch Lodge. It was back in July 2021. It's owned by John Risley. So the comment, of course, are coming quite clearly, is what type of discussions takes place behind closed, closed doors between elected officials, and in this case the premier, and the proponent of World Energy GH2, the 164 wind turbines, the establishment of ammonia plant, and the green hydrogen plant for export to Germany. The premier says he puts up ethical walls and no such discussions took place on this fishing trip. And who knows? When we stand back and we look at the world of business in this province, if you backed out 20 of the notable names, there would be no business in this province. It's a very small pool of the most elite business people. It is. Now, what happened at that lodge? I don't know. I wasn't there. But here's where it gets a bit more traction, whether or not... And this work was done by Alex Bill at All Newfoundland uh, and Labrador. They do good work down there. Congratulations, Alex. Keep up the good work. But what does this mean to you? What are your thoughts on it? Here's where it gets a little bit dodgier for the Premier. And look, I get frustration. (laughs) We all get frustrated. When asked about this at a scrum yesterday afternoon, his quote, which gives it more traction than maybe the story needs or deserves, but it's real, he said, everybody's been critical of me from day one. Uh, First about my charitable work, then me practicing medicine, and now about what I do on my vacation time, like we need to. We need to have some respect for public figures here in their own personal time. So he paid for his own travel there in his own lodgings, and yes, Risley owns the resort, And yes, there would be all kinds of reaction and lots of negative reaction aimed at the premier on this one. What that meant for wind, I don't know. It was three months after that particular fishing trip where we started to hear rumbles about doing away with the ban on wind energy. And of course, Risley's not the only proposal in the hopper here. Apparently, there's some 31 proposals sitting on the minister's desk at this moment in time. So if you want to offer your thoughts on that, we can do it. It's one of those stories that it's tantalizing, right, for many. It's those personal relationships where many people will wonder aloud, and some of it's based on simple things like campaign finance. You know, people think that those in the know have the upper hand. Those with friends in high places get all the breaks. Those with friends sitting on the eighth floor get the jobs, get the projects, get the funding, get the financing, get the tax breaks and the subsidies. That's the thought, right? It's, perception becomes reality in politics. Is it bad optics? I'll leave that up to you. Is there anything we can do about it? I'll leave it up to you. Or add this as a question, is do we expect those who run for office, get elected, to all of a sudden their lives are absolutely over? It's politics and nothing but. It's go to work, go home, spend time with your family, and you cannot have any friends, and you cannot go fishing with your dad, and you cannot go to a lodge owned by someone who might be doing business in the province, and has in the past. I don't know. What do you make of it? We'll take your comments on it from any angle. You know me. There's nothing where 
worried about talking about in this program, the public inquiry into the Emergency Measures Act. That's up for grabs. I haven't had one call on it, even though I've put it out there every day since the day before it began in Ottawa. And for your information, the COVID hub provincially has been updated as it is every Wednesday. Five more people have died with COVID-related deaths. That brings the total to 253 since the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020. Our condolences to the families. We have no idea what the caseloads are. We have no idea how COVID is prevalent in schools. We don't know. We don't know any of these things. So if you want to tackle it, we can do exactly that. It would be nice to know. The last time we had an update, for instance, in school, is that absenteeism was around 30%. That's much more than normal, but it doesn't mean everyone has COVID. It just means the absentee number is what it is. It could be cold, bad belly, COVID, got hurt playing hockey, whatever it is. But it isn't gone away as much as many of us are completely fed up and tired of it. Just because we're tired of it doesn't mean it's gone away. And if you want to tackle it, we haven't been talking much about COVID, but COVID, regardless of who you are, where you are, has an implication with almost everything else we're talking about. So those are the numbers for your consideration. If you want to talk about it, you know what to do. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, my favorite is when you give us a shout to talk about your issue live on the air. Don't go away. Ooh, welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one, and say good morning to his worship, Brian Button. He's the mayor of Port of Basque. Mayor Button, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I know you've got your hands full, obviously, so we appreciate you making time for the program. There have been some fundamental changes out in Port of Basque regarding board orders and emergency, state of emergency. Where are we? Well, Patty, we've just filed uh, with the back with the province there, as you know, with state of emergency. When you do, you know, you fill out the documentation, you declare a state of emergency. Well, you do the the opposite in the reversal. Um, we will be lifting uh, the state of emergency here for the fact of you no, know, it doesn't change what's going on and and the activities with the immediate response team and the activities, the processes that we're into now of of the homes and so on and so forth. But from a town's perspective, we're out of the, I guess, the danger of uh, having to deal with in case we need any special measures and things that would be related to a, a state of emergency call. So we're in the process of lifting that, uh, which in some circumstances, you know, there are there are organizations that, you know, uh, have their scheduling around state of emergencies and so on and so forth. So we have to let some normalcy come back into play now with regards to that. Which is a good thing, but of course, for every individual, they'll have a different thought process about how they feel, what their future looks like, how and where and why to rebuild, all those types of things. You know, a couple of things. People send me so many pictures of all the dumpsters that are full and, you know, just basic questions like where has all the rubble gone all the rubble right now has been uh, being gone to the transfer site here uh, just outside of port of basque uh, our garbage collection in our community is like we have a for even on a good days and, and and when we're just doing regular activity that's that all goes to a transfer station which then in turn gets shipped off and and goes to cornerbrook and uh, the material there now has been, you know, has gone to that area. And again, it's being sorted up there and uh, it's being transferred out as as what whatever process then that they do there. You know, I gave out some of the estimates for damage and we know so many people are unable to get any insurance coverage. And yes, the province has backstopped their need to rebuild. I mean, what are folks saying? Because as you look at where your house once stood or your fishing stage once stood and some 35,000 uh, feet of fishing line out in the water, what are people telling you, Brian? 
Well, you know, that's one thing about being in, you know, in, when you're in a municipal level of government, you're right here on the ground. You're dealing with people personally and touching, talking to people on a daily basis. My day usually ends for all day of, of you know, the, between the calls with other people and having a conversation. I'm just in a conversation with a homeowner here while I was waiting to go on with you. And when you introduced me, I was walking away from them. So it's, it's people are, you know, wanting the basic thing is right now is the getting the decision and finding the status on what their home has been labeled or what, you know, what the future holds for, for them and their, their home. It's getting that answer, first of all, is finding out, you know, is my home going to be salvageable? Is it uh, going to be set for demolition? Is it, you know, what's the case on all of it happening? And I think once those decisions are, everybody is aware of that, you know, compensation packages and how things go will take a little bit of time and it will be probably dealt with on an individual basis. But it's just now, it's just the, I suppose we're into the fourth week. It's it's like us as well. It's the, it's the weight right now of just getting the weight of that decision off of one's shoulders. And, you know, that's the conversations that I'm having with people. It's It's not so much of you know how it's all going to be worked out it's it's just the fact of knowing uh where they stand and, and what it's all going to mean do we have any understanding how homes are being valued for government coverage is it what it would cost to replace it the way it was or appraised value do we happen to know I, I don't know all the details on it, but I know all of the things are being looked at. I mean, from every angle, from assessed values to appraised values to, you know, replacement cost and so on and so forth. So I would imagine that, you know, from conversations that I've had, that all of these things are being taken into account. And, you know, each case is probably going to be different and uh, be dealt with on an individual basis. So, you know, that's going to be a process. There's no doubt about that. And, and everyone's aware of that that's going to be a process but it's it's just the initial to to get that started now and find out well are, am I in that process or am I looking at doing something differently and we can talk about rebuilding and bricks and mortar and infrastructure but it really to me sometimes I, tr- I struggle with how to balance it with the human toll because that's the biggest issue for me I know people have lost so many things that are irreplaceable things of sentimental value the baby books or who knows what it was that they lost that we can't replace we can rebuild a home but we can't rebuild what the emotional and mental toll has taken on people give us a sense of the community its spirit or lack thereof given what we've gone through Patty, you know, for all of us, me included, you know, we've had our moments and uh, that's that's been the, the hardest part of all of this is is dealing with the personal loss of uh, a home. A home can be rebuilt, but it's what was in that home is what has taken the toll on our residents and the residents in our neighboring communities. And, you know, we've been very fortunate that the, a team of, you know, mental health supports have been here and, you know, I know with what we've been arranging on, on the most obvious demolitions that have had to take place and are currently taking place, you know, uh, we've, you know, sent out mental health teams that have been there to, to support families during this time. And we've allowed time in when these demolitions have been happening, if at all possible and could be done safely, to try to find that little momentum that might be there, that there's something to take away from this and uh, to try to work with them in that aspect. In some cases, it it may not be possible or it's not possible because of safety or so on and so forth. But, 
you know, those supports have been here and we've utilized those supports and we encourage people to use it because my sense of going around the community, I know personally myself, you know, I've had to, to reach out to mental health services and, and talk to them because it, it has been, you know, it's, it, this is not a one-off. This is like hundreds of people that are uh, dealing with this and, you know, it, it's, it's their entire lives and, some that, you know, I, I continue to say, you know what, this has happened to probably one of our most vulnerable citizens in our community. We've we've affected our seniors, our, our retirees, our low-income uh, families that have been in here. And, you know, it's been very difficult. And, uh, you know, I, even talking about it now, I feel myself filling up because it, it is hard. So I can only imagine what toll and what it's taking on the people that are involved. I can't imagine, as uh, I've told you in the past, you know, on that Saturday afternoon, I had to walk away from my phone. I just could not handle it anymore. It was breaking my heart, and it was terrifying. And there's one family who I'll, I'll leave their name out of it. You know, they've sent me the before and afters. There's where the house was, and now it's gone, and here's the rubble, and now it's gone. And the the tone and the tenor and the emotion, even an email, which is hard to drag context out of, is breaking my heart every time I open it up. It's really extraordinary stuff. Uh, But I hope the folks on the Southwest Coast know, and I'm sure they do when so many people and organizations and businesses tried to help immediately on the aftermath, that it's not gone away. We're happy to take the stories and talk about it and what's next for for individuals and families and the community. So, Brian, I'm glad that... You know, I'm sure the toll it's taken on you is immense. And good on you for admitting that you've reached out to get someone to talk to to help help you navigate your community through the aftermath. So from where I stand, the leadership has been outstanding. And we really appreciate your time this morning, Mayor Button. Anything else you'd like to say or to uh, offer to the listeners before we say goodbye? Oh, just before we say goodbye, just on that last point that you made, Patty, of, you know, uh, this province has been extraordinary and, uh, you know, right across the nation, really. But for our province, I mean, it's been proud moments of, I mean, the amount of reach out that, you know, uh, from people, you know, we get to a point where it's it's too much stuff here. And uh, when you say that, we're looking for means to probably send it to some other communities to help out some less fortunate in, in other communities and stuff. So, I mean, it's just been overwhelming. And, and I can never, ever uh, thank uh, my colleagues and municipal governments right across this province and people within the communities for all that they've done and you guys as well from a media standpoint. So I've, from our community to all of you, we certainly appreciate we're happy to do whatever we can, small or large, or help organize or whatever, get the message out. Uh, Mayor Button, take good care of yourself. Stay in touch at, with the program at your convenience. All right. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, it's not really my place, uh, certainly when we talk about provincial or federal politicians, but at the municipal level, I mean, just think about the enormous pressure on all the municipal leaders through all the impacted communities on the southwest coast and other parts of the province where we're talking about more often than not volunteers i mean we've had a problem trying to even get folks to run we don't even have quorum in some communities we have more seats than we have candidates and for many of the day-to-day issues that impact your world it falls on the, the shoulders of municipal leaders councillors, deputy mayors, mayors, whatever the case may be, uh, administrators. So I don't mind saying, and I'll say it again, the leadership we've seen from many of these uh, municipal leaders, mayors on the southwest coast, Brian Button included, outstanding in the most difficult times. Uh, Let's go to line number two. Bob, you're on the air. Hey, buddy. Yes, sir. How's it going, mate? Grand today. Um, 
I just have a question, Patty. I haven't got much time to talk, but I, I just have a question. Uh, the convocation, one convocation is today. I was just wondering if that's going to be uh, televised on TV and what channel? Well, they were. Was it on Rogers Local? That's where I think I saw some a clip of it when I was at one of my friends' house. I don't have that particular service in my house. Just let me see here. Da, 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 da. I can find that out fairly quickly. Uh, attend tickets. Arts Culture Center. Come on, where is it? Live stream for guests. Okay. Yes, convocation ceremonies will be live streamed. Uh, family and friends may view the ceremonies from the comfort of their home. Do you use the internet, Bob? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, so just uh, go to MUN itself. It's their website, Memorial University, and there will be a link there for you to watch the ceremonies live. Okay, that's great, sir. And who belongs to you is uh, convoking today, convocating? Uh, I have a granddaughter, Tanil Laddie Care. Uh, she's uh, very proud. I am we're very proud of Tanil today, uh, graduating from MUN, and uh, we'd like to watch her on the uh, Today. Yeah, there'll be a web page. You can watch right there on the uh, computer screen or laptop or what have you. So just go to Memorial University's website, or even better and probably easier, just Google up Mon Convocation and probably bring it to the same page that I go to uh, every day to have a look at what's going on. What's her degree in, Bob? I think she's uh, in social studies or more or less something on that line. Fair enough. Yep. Congratulations to her. I'm sure you're quite proud, as you should be. Uh, enjoy the ceremony. All right, thanks, Patty. You're welcome, Bob. All the best. Have a good day. You too, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, you can just go to Mon's page. Click, and away you go. So uh, I actually have looked at it for the last couple of days because I have some friends whose uh, children are also graduating this go-around. Uh, so anyway, and while I see you in the hallway, I want to say a big happy birthday to one of my faves, Claudette Burns, from here at VOCM. Happy birthday, Claudie. I can see you in the hallway. Hope that didn't embarrass you, but happy birthday to you. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Well, yesterday afternoon or yesterday morning, we spoke with one of the uh, directors of advocacy at Monsu about the housing crunch, in particular as it pertains to international students. I've mentioned the fact that out at Simon Fraser University in BC, they have a home share program where seniors, for instance, can rent at low cost a room to a student for exchange for some household chores and the like, trying to find out of the box ways to deal with the issues here because housing is a massive crunch in this region. Mun had such a program, it went by the wayside. To tell us more about it is a former co-chair of Home Share NL, that's Sherry Ritter, joins us on line number two. Good morning, Sherry, you're on the air. Good morning. Hi, Patty. Well, how much time do I have? Oh, we can take our time. <laughs> okay, well, back in 2009, I happened to listen to your competition to Ramona Deering on her crosstalk, and uh, she had Bruce Pierce, who was the uh, St. John's Homelessness Network coordinator, and Daniel Smith, who was the chair of the Canadian Federation of Students at the time at MUN. And they were on the program talking about the need for affordable housing for students since uh, MUN was building a new dorm, but they still needed room, I think, space for 500 students. So I called in to uh, Ramona's show and said that when I was a case manager for a provincial uh, Ontario home care program 
in Ottawa, we, the city of Ottawa had a program called Match and Share, and this was in the 80s. So I said, I suggested to them maybe we could set up a home share program in St. John's matching seniors with students. They liked the idea, dear, and we got together and we lobbied all three levels of government and uh, the city, the province, and the, and the federal government, and they gave us funding. It took a while, but we uh, launched the program in 2012, and it was a pilot project. And we had an advisory committee made up of uh, members from MUN, from the College of the North Atlantic, from Seniors Resource Center, from the provincial government and uh, St. John's government. And it was quite successful. We made many matches. We hired a coordinator. in order to interview both seniors and students to safely make a match. And uh, we charged $400 a month, which was quite affordable for students at the time. And we had um, many international students. And uh, we work uh together with the International Student Association at MUND quite closely. How exactly did it work? Let's say, did I have to be an international student? Could I be from uh, Grand Falls? Or how did it work? So I apply for home share. What happened? Okay. So most students like to, once they go to MUN and they live away, they want to have a good time at school. So they usually want to be at the dorm. So this really was a program for graduate students who wanted a more quiet atmosphere, any graduate student or any student, but typically it would be a graduate student. And we had a lot of promotion on campus and also online, on air, in print media and to um, advertise for seniors who would be interested. So people would call our program. And uh, as I said, we had a specific form. I worked very closely together with uh, the director of the Vermont Home Share Program. Home Share is not new. As I said, I, I worked with a program in the 80s. There's an international Home Share Program. In fact, I uh, recently was on a Zoom with the international Home Share Program. And this woman, Elizabeth Mills, who was the director in England, remembered uh, our first coordinator, Andrew Harvey. I don't know if you knew Andrew. I didn't know Andrew. He passed away. Yes, yes, unfortunately. Yeah. And um, he was so wonderful. He was so caring and thoughtful to both the seniors and the students to make a match. So... As I said, we developed policies and procedures that we were very lucky to work together with the Vermont program. So we developed um, an interview um, session for both seniors and students, what their likes and dislikes are. So we wanted to have a compatible match, and we wanted uh, the, the students to be able to help, just as you were saying before, help the seniors, and in turn, it gave um, seniors, you know, who were lonely living in their house, it gave them companionship and the students would say help with laundry or snow shoveling, whatever they said that, you know, they could do that was compatible and would be helpful. 
but they did not provide any personal care. Right, of course, you know, clearing the walkway, mowing the lawn, painting the fence, whatever kind of stuff needs to be done around the house. It just sounds like such a smart play, such a smart program. It alleviates so many worries. You help the senior, you help the student. Uh, What sort of cost was it for government? At that time, they gave, it was $100,000 for two years. And I was really... Well, disappointed isn't the word I would say, but I was so upset that they didn't continue funding this because really we called it an alternative to affordable housing. There were no bricks and mortars. You didn't have to build anything. Seniors in uh, St. John's typically live in their own homes. They were alone. So this would help seniors maintain their independence longer in their own home, and it would give them some extra money. So we thought it was a win-win for um, everybody. And the students loved it. Like, they all got along so well. And at the same time, I... um, said that we should have an evaluation at the same time uh, concurrently with the program. I had been uh, the first coordinator of a needle exchange program in Ottawa, and that's what they did. We had an evaluation concurrently. So um, one of the professors from MUN, who is the, I think, acting dean now of the School of Social Work, Gail Weidman, along with one of her master's students, created the evaluation of the program and conducted it and now we have that and uh, you know we can provide that anytime to anybody that may want to set up a program again but in uh, Canada there's um, there's more than BC in um, Ontario there's a lot of programs there's um, two social work professors in uh, at U of T that set up, they call it now Canada Home Share, and they've set up about five more home share programs. The BC one may actually be theirs that they help set up. And we have a director, a chair of the Canadian Home Share Association, Cheryl Snyder, who's in Calgary, and she happens to be the chair of the International Home Share Program. So it's not new, and it's, as I said, quite successful. So... You know, I was really disappointed that it uh, didn't continue in St. John's. And I've heard that now there's a need again for um, for this type of program. It, it would be wonderful it could, if it could be set up again. It, it must be. You know, I, know it, I only mentioned Simon Fraser University because I happened to recently read a story about it. So it just stuck in my mind. It's been a good example to use. You know, when you look at how and where we spend money sometimes, and I know this is always a calculation that people will do, the taxpayers will do, but $100,000 over the course of two years, even just for, fast forward that and include inflation, let's call it 200000 whatever, $100,000 a year. We're putting $100,000 Band-Aids on stuff all the time. Exactly. This pro- yeah, this program just makes every bit of sense in the world, not only for students, but for the community, for the seniors. It's, just, it's mind-boggling that these things go by the wayside. And I'll just tell you, when we set it up, we went to Mount Pearl and to Paradise to uh, speak to their city councils, and people gave money. The uh, the uh, councils gave money to this program, so it wasn't just St. John's. So um, I, 
I think it's beneficial, and you're right. I, um, you know, people even back in the 80s, governments would say, you know, they don't get a big uh, bang for the buck, big enough bang for the buck. But I, I think they're so wrong that uh, it is really quite helpful for so many people in the community, especially when you need affordable housing. We get to speak with uh, Dr. Vianne Timmons, the president at Memorial University, every now and then. And I know some others who would be the go-to voices to talk about this because we can build new dorms. We can talk about affordable housing and vacancy rates in Airbnbs and the real estate market. But when there are tried and true policies and programs like this that are not currently being utilized, all the while we're worried about and talking about housing, it's just these types of things that people find so frustrating. You know, so I'm going to keep going with this one because I think this is what of the best ideas I've heard in a long time, and we're going to see what we can do to get it reinstated. Wonderful. And if they, if any of them want to call me, you can give them my phone number. Okay, we'll do exactly that. Sherry, really appreciate the time here this morning. We'll keep going because I think we can extrapolate this ideas, this idea to not only Mon but CNA and the Marine Institute and Keyan College and maybe other well, facets of the community. We had the college on, and my dream at the beginning was to have a home share program all around the province, every place where they had a college. I wanted to do that. People in the government thought I was, you know, dreaming too much, but that's what I wanted to do because then all the seniors that are living alone in all the small communities where the college are, I mean, everybody could have benefited. So have to dream bigger. I think if we polled the community to give it some critical mass, I think that would be the driving force to see it reinstated. If you had, say, out in Stephenville, where the college has a uh, campus, and there was 10 people in 24 hours that I would absolutely take a student in for a bit of help around the house, that's the critical mass required to bring that into the fold. I think this is something that could be done. I know. Yeah. Sherry, great to have you on the show. Really appreciate your time and your perspective. Thank you very much. Take good care. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, Sherry Ritter, co-chair, former co-chair of Home Share. Those are some of the ideas that, you know, when we think big and we're talking about building affordable housing and looking at the root cause for the vacancy rate being so low and the crunch on housing and things that are out there that we know can work, not a big price tag, and I was going to say killing a couple of birds, but helping a variety of different people all with the same program. I'm going to keep pushing that one. Why not? Let's take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Joyce, you're on the air. Hi, Patty, me boy. How are you? I'm hanging tough. How you doing? Oh, not too bad. Uh, teed off. Uh, the reason I'm calling uh, a friend of ours passed away, Molly Young, from Corner Book. I don't know if you know of Herb Young and Eric Young. That was the husband and the son. They're in the sports big time. I think I do know how those people are. Anyway, she was 102 when she passed away, and she was a sweetheart and smart as a pin. Um, when she passed away, my sister in Calgary, she ordered a bouquet from a company. I'm not allowed to say any company names, but it should be allowed because these people are ripping people off big time. And I mean big time. She ordered a bouquet. It was a designer collection. It was supposed to be lily, white lilies, white roses, white carnations, and a lot of greenery. She also ordered a beautiful red card to go with it. And she paid $132.22. 
It was done up by a company here on the West Coast. I'm not allowed to say any names, I was told. Well, what happens when we say names? I'll just explain it to you and explain it to others. If... If you, this is about protecting you more than anything else, Joyce. Because if we get into a uh, one side said someone did something wrong or ripped me off or committed fraud or what have you, if yeah. it turns out that they can defend it in the court of law, you could get yourself in trouble. It's not about me. I couldn't care less about these things. Right. And you know, when I say company names, I have to do the research to back up that I know what I'm talking about and I can verify it and I can defend myself if I have to. That's why we do these things because it's not about being afraid of the company. It's hoping that you don't get yourself in trouble. That's all it is. Yeah, but the reason I'm doing this, uh, the bouquet they sent out, I'll tell you what they sent out. They sent out a yellow sunflower, two red carnations, a few red sticks, and with a yellow bow on it. And that's what she got for her money. I don't have a computer. But my sis, my daughter saw it, and my brother, and they couldn't believe it. They said, you wouldn't throw it in the garbage, what they sent out. It was that bad. And her daughter, Debbie, sent a picture to my sister to, to show the bouquet she received, and she was floored. She couldn't believe it, what she got for that money. And the company, I talked to them till I was blue in the face. I told them I was going on the talk show, and I was going to give out their names and everything. And they couldn't care less. And they got a companies all across Canada. Surefire way to put it on record what you think of one business or another, whether you got value for money spent or they ripped you off or they didn't follow through, is lodge it at the Better Business Bureau. Because then if anybody's curious, some people do this when they go to buy something from a local or national, international company, is whether or not these people have a good reputation or a bad reputation, and they check with the Better Business Bureau. Some people actually do that. So yeah. if I was you, I would register this company with them. They're oh, the outfit. I am uh, your... Um a gentleman that takes the call gave me the number, and I, when I get off the phone, I will call them. But uh, the reason I'm doing this is because somebody is doing up these bouquets, and people think they're getting what they're getting, and they're not at the other end. The, other, the person they're sending it to is getting garbage, and they're pocketing the money. I guarantee you, they gotta be. And all they put in for a card on the flowers was a little piece of cardboard instead of the nice card that she uh, had sent, right? Buyer beware when you shop on the Internet, no matter what you're shopping for. Yeah, but I mean, it's on Facebook, but I want to warn people that if you're ordering flowers, get in touch with the person you sent it to and see that they got what you sent. I don't have a computer because I'd look up what they sent, but my daughter said it's disgusting. She couldn't believe it, and my brother said the same thing. She got nothing for her money. Like she said, she'd pick better flowers out of her garden. You know, who sends a sunflower for a person that passed away? Really, think about it. Well, I mean, I don't know. See, this is where the stories get confusing for anybody is... I don't know what was ordered. I don't know what was delivered. I don't know what was anticipated. I don't know what anyone paid for it. That's where, honest to God, people all the time say, who am I afraid of? I couldn't care less. When I say company names, because I have figured it out and I know what I might be getting myself into. When, for instance, in this case, someone told you about something that happened. So if if you're advised by Dave not to say a company, then that's only trying to give you a leg up so that you don't put yourself in any hot water. If you are so committed this morning to say, the company name to potentially get yourself in trouble go for it i'm not going to stop you but i I think that it's generally not a great idea 
I'll go for it. Can I go for it? Quickly, and then we're saying goodbye. Okay. The company that did this up was Bluemix from Ontario. And their phone number, you want the phone number? No. People can look it up if they want. Bluemix from Ontario. Okay. Bluemix. And they got them right across the country. And the company that did it here was on St. Mark's Avenue. It was Lasting Impressions. And like I said, she ordered a deluxe designer collection, and she got... Well, you put, wouldn't put it in the garbage. Okay. And listen, Patty, I really appreciate you taking my call. Oh, can I say one other thing? Very quickly. Okay. Uh, Kruger, when they're in cutting, they're in cutting Lago School Road. I mean, it's like they got everything wiped out in there. Uh, they mash up the wood that nobody can get firewood. They make sure it's mashed up and destroyed that there's no firewood to be had. But the reason I want to talk about this, the government is giving refunds to oil and this. uh, People make 150,000 and da da da. Okay. What about the person who has to go get their wood? They're using their gas. They're using their power saw. Uh, the time to get it and everything, and you're making a dozen trips to get this wood, and it's costing in gas, and gas is through the roof and everything else. Right. And, I mean, why don't they give us a break? You know, we're all Canadians. We all burn wood. Not all of us, but a good many. And Trudeau has gone to hell with it because if he stopped flying his jet, we wouldn't have to worry about the environment, the fumes that are coming out of that. You get me? (laughs) I appreciate the time, Joyce. I'm late for the news. Take good care of yourself. Have a lovely day, and thank you so much. Anytime. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Well, I've been wondering what the reaction is to the World Energy GH2 proposal out in the Stephenville area. And I'm sure we're going to get some of that when we say good morning to Peter Fenwick. Of course, he's the former mayor of Cape St. George. Good morning. Wait, no, wrong button. Morning, Peter. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Great, sir. How are you doing? Pretty good now. Um, I haven't been mayor for about the last year, but uh, prior to that, I had um, some medical problems and I didn't know whether I was over them. So I didn't feel I should have offered again last year and I didn't. And uh, it's too bad because now we're at a point where we have this major project being proposed for the peninsula. And uh, uh, it'd be helpful to have somebody with experience there in order to negotiate with the company. But uh, that's passed now. So now I'm just a very much an interested observer and an innkeeper here. So uh, there is, a, just to give you an idea, I, there is some business that likely to come our way from people that are going to be working on this project. So I do have a, a bit of an interest there. Uh, but other than that, um, I'm interested in see how the whole thing goes. Well, so am I, you know. What we do here very often is there's a lot of knee-jerk stuff, right? So this project gets proposed, and now we can add in the kerfuffle of the fishing trip and what have you. But it's automatically, I think we've just got this built-in fear of mega projects, given what's happened with the Muskrat Falls project. So we've gone down that path before we really have a firm understanding exactly what this proposal looks like. So it's yeah, one but- thing to be concerned with the, the ecology and migratory routes and flora and fauna and the eyesore that people refer to as the 164 wind turbines. What are people saying? Uh, actually, the uh, the polling that's been done, and there hasn't been a lot, but there has been in two areas on the peninsula itself, has been overwhelmingly negative. 
in the Three Rock Cove um, Lords area, not Lords area, but the Three Rock Cove uh, mainland area, which is two local service districts on the outer side of the peninsula. Uh, the people went door to door in order to get people's ideas on it, and I think 99% said, no, we don't want it. Uh, Cape St. George, which is a town that I live in and used to be the mayor of, uh, did a poll, and the poll said had something in the range of 76% saying, no, we don't want it either. So the, the prevailing attitude, if you look at those two polls, is that people oppose it. They don't want to see it going forward. And I think partially that's because of two reasons. Uh, the first one is they don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, they don't know where the windmills are going to be located. Are they going to be in a place where you can hear them day and night from where your house is and, and spoil your enjoyment of your area? Or are they going to be in an area where there's absolutely no revenue coming to the local service districts and towns on the peninsula? The revenue one is the one I'm most concerned with. Uh, as it stands now, the whole project involves uh, building a very large plant in Stephenville, which, of course, would have to pay property tax and is a very huge source of revenue for the town of Stephenville. Although, frankly, having an ammonia plant in your backyard may not be the best idea in the world, but basically that's what they're planning to do. But on the peninsula, the windmills are all going on crown land, and there's no assurances that there's any kind of a, a local revenue stream coming out of this operation. For example, I pay a business tax here, operate my inn, so does the corner store. Uh, will the people who are operating this project with these windmills, will they have to pay a business tax? And if they do, what kind of business tax is, is going to be set up? So far, we've gotten nothing really concrete. The meeting, the one meeting I had, and where I was at a, a public meeting with John Risley, he said, well, we'll make some arrangements similar to what's going on in Stephenville, but I don't really think that's good enough. There's got to be some legislation, some regulations, and something ironclad that says, yes, you're going to get this out of it. As it stands now, since it's on Crown land, the province is the one that will be the major beneficiaries for it. Having said all that, however, I, I, I'm a very strong supporter of the idea of alternative energy, of using wind power, and frankly, we're one of the windiest spots in Newfoundland. And on that basis, I think it should go forward. But it, we don't seem to have any control over it. Uh, the people, the 4,000 people in the peninsula, seem to have virtually nothing that they can do in order to control what's going forward. It's the province, and as you said, uh, judging by the fishing trip, it looks like the province is well ensconced with the people who are pushing forward this. And on that basis, we don't expect, at least I don't expect it to be stopped by us. Now, it may be when they worked out the numbers and they find out how much wind they've got and they, how much it's going to cost to build it and what they're going to get for selling the hydrogen and the ammonia, they may decide that there's no business case for it, in which case it won't go forward. But I doubt if we're in a position to be able to stop it. Yeah, and I really don't know the implications of the fishing trip. I honest to God don't. I mean, the Premier can meet with John Risley anywhere, anytime, anyway, so I'm not really sure what to make of that. If he paid his own way, I'm really at a bit of a loss on that one, although scrutiny of public figures is part and parcel of what we do here, and that's just the way it goes. The point you make about what's in it for us is an important one, and we're not really sure. We know how the oil and gas industry works. We know how the mining industry works. We know how forestry works. This is brand new. So to protect us, I mean, if it's structured in a way 
where I'm not muskrat fallish. Like, I'm not the customer. I'm not the consumer. I'm not putting any of my money, my provincial tax dollar in it. If we lease the crown land and we find a way to charge a royalty and we do all the comprehensive environmental assessment, I'm not so sure I'm opposed to this at all. But again, I don't live there. <laughs> so yeah. it's easy enough yeah. for me to say I won't be in close proximity to the ammonia plant or the hydrogen plant or the windmills themselves. So like most things here, people in Labrador living along the Churchill River, their concerns were ecological and environmental. People on the island was probably much more about dollars and cents. So it really does depend on where you are and your perspective on these types of projects. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the, the part of it. When, when, I, when I talk to uh, people who are involved with proposing it and, and moving it forward, they talk about, well, look at all the employment that will be involved with it. Well, we've heard that again and again and again. And frankly, the amount of employment is marginal. It's great during the construction phase. There's thousands of jobs to stick up these huge windows. But afterwards, there doesn't seem to be the kind of ongoing employment that really makes a huge difference to the whole peninsula itself. So rather than do that, and let's see, uh, let's see some provincial legislation that says if you're putting in wind power and you're putting it in an area that's close to communities, the communities have a right to impose a tax on it. By the way, this is the same thing that's done in Saskatchewan right now. If you have a potash mine in an unincorporated area, the local town next to it actually gets revenue from that mine through the provincial government. None of that has been assured here. And in fact, when we propose that for the uh, uh, for the Remember, remember that old big kapapa we had about putting in fracking oil uh, yeah. north of the Port of Port Peninsula. Yeah. When we talked about that at the time, there was, uh, you know, there just. Uh there was nothing there in terms of, of, of saying, okay, what kind of revenue is involved with it? What are we going to end up with doing? Um, and the province did not take that hint that maybe they should have a role in supporting municipalities and local service districts close to where these resources are. And since they failed to do that, that's basically given rise to a tremendous amount of resentment to what's going forward, which is too bad, because I think that, <laughs> as you and I know, we got tons of wind in the whole province all over the place, and in the future, that might become one of the greatest resources we have. It might be a tremendous source of income and so on, but we've got to establish the rules at the beginning. Right now, we don't have legislation that covers it, and because we don't have legislation that covers it on a general rate and with regulations, uh, then the, the company does what it wants, essentially and what it's been given permission by the Crown Lands people to do. And on that basis, the municipalities are left out in the cold completely. And that's unfortunate because, frankly, municipalities and local service districts on the peninsula can need a tremendous amount of revenue in order to bring their standards up to even anywhere they close to what you enjoy in St. John's and in other areas like that. Because we have tons of places that have been on a boil order for 40 years. These local service districts have not been able to do anything beyond street. They haven't been able to put street lighting in. They don't have anything in those places. And yet, if the whole project goes forward and nothing is available to them, defined by legislation, not as a, a gift from John Risley, but defined by legislation, then it's it's no wonder that they're resentful of the whole thing. Fair enough. Uh, very quickly before we run out of time, Peter, you and I, I think maybe the last time we spoke, we talked about all the changes made in waste management. You were a former member of the board of the Western Ma Waste Management thing, so it was, you know, a variety of concerns. We're just paying more and more emissions to ship garbage around. Then for municipalities, who yeah. might have had a commercial or industrial landfill bringing revenue into the town. That's come by the wayside. Has anything yeah. changed? Any improvements been made? No, and that's the unfortunate part. I was involved with it five years ago, and at the time I was involved, I said, look, 
I said, we need a three-stream operation, one which is garbage, one which is recyclables, and one which is organics. And organics take up, you know, organics, kitchen straps, essentially. They take up about 40% of your landfill stream. And on that basis, if we can find a way to alternate that besides burying it in ground, which is what a landfill does, then we should do it. Well, we found a farm on the west coast here, has 1,000 cows that they're milking, by the way, the largest one east of the Rocky Mountains. And we asked them, look, you have a big digester there, and you take the straw and the manure and everything else, you produce hydrogen, or you produce methane, sorry, and you use that to produce electricity. Can we bring our organic waste here, and will you handle it? And can you handle it at less than $160 a ton, which is what the Waste Management Committee was charging? And he said, yes, we could do it for about half that price. So I brought that to the committee, and I said, look, let's start working on this. And they said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. We have to set up everything else first, and then we'll go and look at that. Well, that's been five years, and nothing's moved. And on that basis, what we did as a town, we said, okay, we buy a couple of hundred of backyard composters, gave them away to our people and said, look, you got to use them. You, and all of a sudden, 30 or 40% reduction in our waste occurred. But that was a really rough way of doing it because we still have people who throw it in the garbage and it's still got to be taken away. So it's that that area of it that I had the big dis, biggest disagreement that I was told that they would be moving forward with that a year or so later. And like I said, uh, almost half a decade later, and still nothing's been done, which is... I, I think those committees are a foolish waste of time. Personally, I thought that the Western Committee should have been abolished, the Central Committee abolished in Form 1, and then find out what they, way they can do it that way. Because at the time, they were proposing to send our waste all to Central Newfoundland. I understand it's going to Cornerbrook now, and they can have it. I always appreciate the time, Peter. Good to have you on. Hope you're doing well. No problem, Patty. See you later. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Peter Fenwick, of course, uh, former mayor of Cape St. George. I've been really, St. George's, I've been really looking forward to having some perspective from the south coast and the Stephenville area, the Port-to-Port area, because... My understanding of the project, how it impacts me, is vastly different than how it impacts people living in close proximity too. Whether it be the port and the ammonia plants, hydrogen, the windmills, that's why your perspective from other parts of the province where some of these things are happening is critically important to add to the mix. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament elected in and serving the folks of St. John's East. That's Joanne Thompson. Good morning, Joanne. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? I'm good, thank you. So what do we got? Well, Patty, I wanted to call in for a small business week. Um, I know it's towards the end of the week, but I absolutely want to do a shout out to the businesses, certainly around the province, but in particular in, in St. John's East, for the work that they do. Really underscore the importance of all of us in, in Newfoundland and Labrador supporting our small businesses by local wherever you can, because it really, you know, the, the, our small businesses are the backbone of our economy, and we need to continue to support them. Um, I want to just uh, remind anyone in my riding that community update is out, and it is really my report card of the last year. Um, there are a number of strategies in, for small businesses, um, along other, um, certainly across um, all sectors, but certainly with this a small business week, um, the, the strategies to help businesses over the last three years, but as we uh, move forward in the next couple of years as well. And certainly, um, I would really be remiss to not 
remind people um, November 11th is coming quickly. Buy a poppy. Support our veterans. It's incredibly important. This is a significant source of income for many of the legions. And I think, you know, it's important um, that we support them in the uh, the coming weeks. There was support uh, throughout the pandemic, you know, wage subsidies, what have you, some forgivable portion of SIBA loans. But seven out of 10 small businesses in this country took on some pretty significant debt through the crisis of the pandemic. Then you add to it, you know, labor shortages and even CPP contributions going up. Many small businesses would consider that some sort of payroll tax. So insofar as the heavy debt load, and small business is a big cog in the engine of the economy, but some of these debt loads, some businesses say it's going to take up to two years to repay these loans. So I know government's going to have to cut back on spending and rein it in, as we heard from the Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, yesterday. Some mm-hmm. budget cuts are going to have to come on the backs of some of these small businesses. So even something like the debt load that small business has taken on, what's the government think or say about that? I think there's a number of programs, Patty, that have come out over the last number of months. One is certainly um, uh, extending the deadline for repayment of the emergency account loans. And it's really, you know, uh, that process of repayment is not intended to uh, create more of a hardship. So it really is about how we can work with businesses to help navigate troubling times. And and part of the uh, very real and timely strategies that continue to roll out from the federal government are about how we're able to support people and businesses now uh, as we move through this period of um, um, fiscal tightening, but also understanding that the projections once we move into the next number of months are incredibly strong. One of the things that I will say is, you know, and this is someone who worked um, on the front lines during COVID pandemic, I know how difficult um, that time was. But I also know that the supports the government put in place allowed us to um, maintain our homes, our businesses, um, our workspaces during that time. In the months and the year following um, the, the, the worst of, of the lockdown, we really saw the economy in Canada come back. I mean, there's no doubt Canada has uh, stepped forward as, as a fiscal leader in the G7. So we do have that in our favor. And one of the things that I really want to be able to say to certainly my constituents and to any of your listeners is, yes, we have tough times right now. But there are very specific programs that are rolling out to help people, and we will continue to roll those programs out. We are in um, a global uh, period of of, uh, financial stress, but Canada is well positioned to lead in the recovery. And, and of course, you know, the economy inflation still continues to be a worry, but even in job creation, which I know governments love to talk about job numbers, in the last 12 to 18 months, almost 87% of the jobs created in this country have been in the public sector, so it's not really the rosy sign that people point to. And also for small business, of which we've lost a load throughout the pandemic. The issue regarding what people refer to as the Amazon effect. So if there's anywhere that small business needs a, some sort of guidance, leadership, or support, is in this whole leap to digital. Retail sales are way up in the country, but so many Canadians want to continue to shop online. We saw explosions at Walmart online, Amazon online, Target online. That is bad for small business. They can't compete with these giants. I know there's been some moves made on the advertising front, like trying to rein in the Facebooks and the Googles of the world on that front. But I look around, and I have many friends in small business. It's the lack of support in this leap to digital, to rein in the Amazon effect is sadly missing on the small business landscape. Your thoughts? 
Well, it's actually, you know, it's a very good point. And, and I will tell you that government uh, recently launched $4 billion in a Canadian digital adoption program because, to your point, we need to be competitive and small businesses are well able to compete in the digital space. So certainly, you know, part of that community update and the reason I referenced it in the beginning is the links to those programs are in uh, that update and certainly the link to my office and any local business that would like to become part of this program, please reach out. We, you know, we send notices to businesses in the riding to let them know when these programs are, uh, come um, on stream because we need to be part of um, uh, the global move to a digital economy. I mean, our world has shifted and changed, and I firmly believe Canada and Newfoundland and Labrador can be a global leader, but we absolutely must get these programs that keep us competitive. Um, we must get them within our, our, all of our businesses and really ensure that we continue to, um, to lead and not fall behind. So there are programs there. I want to make sure we get them out. Appreciate the time, Joanne. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. A pleasure speaking with you. My Bye. pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, MP Bye. Joanne Thompson, of course, Liberal member for St. John's East. Let's get another one before we get to the break. Let's go to one. Wallace, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Patty, I'm Tom from the Sailors Coast, sir, in Burn Islands. Uh, I looked to Brian Button on there this morning, and that's off to him. Uh, similarly, but the people with their homes is gone, and and there's help from metal health, and the people there. Uh, I mean, I, I'm one of them too. I, mean, I was just sitting there, wondering what's the next step for us. It's, it's just sitting there, and we got 11 house, 11 homes that was gone here in Burnham. Like I'm saying, 216 houses over there living in this town, and you got 11 homes gone right now, and uh, the two houses already been taken away. So we're here sitting there with nine ohms or eight ohms, whatever you might want to call it right now. I think one fellow might have done some work, but we can't touch it. Like my house right now is full water. It's, uh, the, the flooring is all gone. The first week, yes, I, I know you can't just snap your fingers and say, oh, this is going to be all fixed for you. But we're sitting back here now wondering what are we going to do? This this is October the 20th. November is crawling up onto us. Where do we go? What do we do? We can't live in the moon. The smell is unreal right now. You, you, anybody go down to that house. I left the door there. He's unlocked, and anybody go down. They want a gas mask on to try to get into that house, Patty. We lost the deploying. The ceiling right now is cracking right now. Because, I mean, I don't got no cement basement. I, I put all the steel jacks onto it. And I spent a lot of money. Me and the wife put a lot of money in this old house to make it a comfortable home for us. And now we got nothing. So it's basically unlivable. And no, you wouldn't live in it, buddy. Not, not. I had three cartmers come, licensed cartmers, come and look at that house. And I'm not only speaking for myself, because I mean, I haven't been in the other houses, but I could tell by the looks of her face when you talk to me in the morning, you walk along with them and, and, and ask your buddy, how's it going? Well, Walls, what do you think? And, you know, people is hurting, and, they're, and the time is still going. Uh, we, you wouldn't live in my house if you were out there today. Anybody to come to my house, like I just said, you need a gas mask on. The water's up to the walls. It's all into the covers and there. The water, salt water, is still there. The flooring under. I got a four-foot crawl place. And I mean, I didn't have no concrete because we couldn't put it there. But my house was only, Patty. It was only uh, two foot off the ground. 
with plywood, and water came over Southward Side Road from one end to the other, because I live next door to where everything happened here. The house got demolished me next door neighbors and that. And busting me the plywood and all that, come up to me flooring, all up to me flooring, to me out, going into me door. And I'm one out of, like I say, at 11 here. And what do we do? Like, I mean, our, our premier come there. I'm 18 years councillor on, on the town there. He came to the town and talked to us. And he put his hand on my shoulder, and I want to, I'm not going to forget it. He says, I said, by this town right now, we, our father, we could have went around and fixed this net when people had something around, but we cannot, this little town. So we had a call, state of emergency. He come here, he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, well, as he said, we're here to help you. And believe me, he said, we will help you. Now, like I'm saying, it's not going to take a day or two, but this is almost four weeks. And we haven't heard anything, and people just waiting there. I mean, I drive on to my door. I don't know. Look, I mean, here's how I understand what's happening here. By the time all the infrastructure inspections and evaluations are, yeah. once they're all complete, then they talk about money going out the door versus, okay, I've done your house inspection. I know it's unlivable. We start the flow of the money to you right away. Apparently, it's a case of when it's all completed, then they move on to the next step of putting money in people's hands. That I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's how, I, that's how it's described to me, Wallace. Yeah, I, I understand that, Patty. Like, I mean, the engineers will come out here the first week, and, and this happened there like, the first week, and the electrician come out. I mean, licensed electrician. I, I am an electrician myself, and, I mean, the inspector come out. I got my house got no power. Got the power had to be cut off due to the power. The water coming up to me receptacles, and I mean I know what else you're going to have a fire pretty soon. And I just spent eight thousand dollars at spring for a new service. I mean, it's, it's costly right now. The two hundred amp service, new panel. I put that and tried to upgrade my house. I didn't want to have no burdens on my kids when I get older. I'm 67 right now. The wife turned 64. Uh, we tried to fix this house up so we have it livable, and, I mean, we had this house done, and we spent a lot of dollars here, and people have seen this around this community. But I understand. They were out, and they looked at it. So the week has gone by, two weeks gone by. Now we are looking at a four weeks. So, like, import of best, they had a lot of construction there, too. I mean, like Brian said, their work is done now. It's, it's all was in there. I'm not asking. I'm not here that asking the premier or, or any any government. Wallace Jones are looking for five hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, or hundred thousand dollars. All I'm looking for, I need a place for me and the wife because it's getting colder. I'm here with my son. My granddaughter moved out of her bedroom. Get washed her bedroom. I mean, and dad, don't worry about stuff. But that's not the point, Patty. Like I got a house down there now, and it's and it's falling down, and it's full a full mold. So what am I supposed to do? Wallace, I'm going to see if I can get an update on time when people can anticipate the, the support flow and the money flow and get you somewhere to live for the winter. Because I know rebuild is going to be tricky as we enter into the winter months. But okay. let me see if I get a timeline for you, and I'll talk about it on the show. All right. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Good luck to you, sir. Okay, thank okay, you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, we spoke with Sherry Ritter a little while ago about HomeShare, an opportunity to match seniors with some students, in this case grad students, attending Memorial University. Sounds like a tremendous plan. George would like to reply to what he heard from Sherry Ritter right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's see, line three, George, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how you doing this morning? Doing Bye. okay, how you doing? 
Not bad. This that was a great idea that lady had there, talking about uh, a room for students and seniors in a big old house by herself or herself, and uh, just to exchange a room, a uh, cheaper room or accommodations or whatever for a few, a few uh, chores around the house to keep the senior happy. And might even get a few bucks out of it to help with the heat and the food and everything else. But anyway. More importantly, Patty, what I wanted to add was uh, that senior probably been working in the field for 50 years. Now, if you could pair a student with the, with the senior that's living in, 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 in his house or her house by themselves that have worked in the same field uh, over the last 50 years, imagine the amount of knowledge that that person has in their head and can help that student in his career or her career coming up. You know what I mean? The, the conversations alone be worked worth a few bucks, right? I mean, every snafu that have occurred over the last 50 years while that person been working, uh, uh, they could pass on to pass on to that student who's just about to go into that field. You know what I mean? And uh, and uh, it, that's that's uh, that's uh, you can't you can't learn that in school. You can only learn that from someone who faced every snafu over their career and and pass it on to the young people so they don't run into the same troubles in their career. You know what I mean? Everything about it sounds like a good idea to me, George, and that's why I was pleased that we could get Sherry to come on and to know that it costs so little for such a big positive upside for everybody involved. For the school, everybody, it alleviated yeah. some housing pressure. It was good for the senior. It was excellent for the student. There's just some of these things you scratch your head and wonder, how did we decide that was not a good idea to support? So I'm going to keep talking about it because I think it's an excellent one. Oh, I think so too. Like I said, and then, like I said, if you pair up that student that's going into the same career as that retired, as that retired uh, senior who worked in that field for fifty years, forty, fifty years, you just imagine the knowledge that that senior could pass on to the student. So they don't run into the same troubles that they did over their career. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I think you make a good point, George. Yeah, I can because we can carefully match people who are, say, for instance, doing an engineering degree or some uh, uh, doing an MBA or doing whatever with someone who has the experience in the field. It would be just one of those matches made in heaven. You get a few bucks oh, yeah. to pay the bills. Someone shovels the driveway for you. The how the student yeah. gets some housing. We alleviate I'm the pressure. Win, I just can't win, believe win. we don't do it. Oh, win, 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 all the way along, Patty. 100%. There's, there's no backside, there's no downside to that at all. That's, that's, that's the best uh, best suggestion I've heard, the best idea I've heard in a long, long time. And, and all I was trying to add was the amount of knowledge that the seniors got in their head after working in, the, in, in fields for 50 years. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the young people that are going to go into them fields should be picking their brains all the time anyway. You know what I mean? Go to them people and talk to them people and say, you know, what you ran, ran, uh, run into over them 40 or 50 years working in the field, you know, how that could help them in their own career, uh, that's fantastic. So just a fantastic thing all the way around. That, that's all I got to say, boy. I, I'm, I bet you you're in the majority thinking that sounds like a good idea. Let's get it back off the ground. So we'll keep throwing it around. I'm going to see if I can get Dr. Timmons at month to speak to it. And some others I've heard from uh, members of a couple of different councils, uh, city councils in the area, asking for information. Yeah. So maybe we've got a kickstarter. Yes, go at him, Patty. Go at him. Good stuff. Thanks, George. Thanks. Thanks, Patty. All the best. Bye bye. Uh, so what am I doing here, Dave? Okay, break it is. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number 10. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills. That's Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Thanks so much for having me on, Patty. So much to talk about. So I really do appreciate the just a, just an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of the things that are important in the minds of people in Newfoundland and Labrador and the successes that our whole province has been having with um, attracting uh, and supporting and benefiting from newcomers in our province. So recently we talked about the numbers coming in, access to health care, housing and the like. Is there a yeah. new update to be offered? Well, you know, there has been some traffic. There's been some uh, social media traffic, some media traffic about uh, uh, whether or not uh, there's housing, adequate housing that's been available. We're, we're trumpeting our, our, uh, our successes, if I could use it, and describe it that way, about how we're getting more and more newcomers, especially Ukrainians and refugees and economic uh, skill, new skills into our province. There was a comment that was made that, you know, this, we've, we've got in, in the spring of... Uh, 2022, this past spring, uh, we had a, two airlifts that came in with uh, a com- total pop- a group of 300 and f- 350 Ukrainians that had to be accommodated in temporary accommodations initially, obviously, for, for, for obvious and good reasons. Um, and people sort of made the connection that, well, there's still a load of Ukrainians in those in those in that temporary accommodation. What's clearly they must not be getting uh, housing. There must not be this must not be successful because we had 350 Ukrainians come in, in the spring. We're still seeing loads and loads and loads of Ukrainians uh, in this you know this relatively well-known hotel. So this obviously is a, is not succeeding. Patty, that needs to be addressed for, simply because on its face, on its surface, it looks like it tells a story, but it's not the right story. We now have, on average, a Ukrainian family coming to Newfoundland and Labrador, on average one family arriving here per day. Uh, we've had now just about 500 Ukrainians that have arrived by special uh, airlift from Warsaw, Poland, into Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, the new news is is that we have over 1,100 Ukrainians living in our province right now. So we are attracting, we are becoming a very, very well-known and desired destination for Ukrainians because the Ukrainians that came here initially, um, they're finding housing, they're finding employment, they're finding schools for their children, they're finding daycare. It's succeeding. There's always going to be work to do. This will never, ever be seamless. When you're dealing with a group of people who've come from severe trauma, who've come from very, very difficult circumstances, who came here with a total of two suitcases to their name, their entire worldly possessions were two suitcases, um, you're going to have the issues. But we, I think better than anyone else, are dealing with that. So we have now, I reported to you last time, we have a, we had 1,000 Ukrainians in our province. <laughs> Today I'm telling you that we have 1,100 Ukrainians in our province. There's a new family that's arriving on average every day. Uh, they're finding employment. They're, they're out there. They're contributing. And this is succeeding. So while there okay. are some influencers that are saying there's, this is a problem we should avoid, this is a, cel- a, a success we should be celebrating. I mean, I know uh, my friends at DF Barnes hired five Ukrainian welders. They're all really anxious to learn more and more English, and they say they're good welders and all this stuff. So, I mean, there are some uh, certainly positive stories emanating from this. But even folks who are completely on-site, pro-immigration, see the economic and societal upside, 
They still have questions, though. So a new Ukrainian family every day for a housing problem that continues, does not that lead to the obvious outcome that some of the people staying in hotels will just be more people staying in hotels? Like, for instance, how much has it cost the government to house these Ukrainian Ukrainians running for their very lives? We all, I understand that, and I know you know that, is how much has it cost us to house them in hotels? Well, it's been, on average now, the temporary accommodation is 28 days. When you consider that, you know, you look at the language issue, you look at uh, just the resettlement of when they arrive here, is it normal and should it be expected that very shortly within days, if not maybe a week, if you were to use that as the as the standard, that people should be out the door um, in the community, in rental housing uh, and actively working in a, in a, in a job? Patty, listen, you and I, I think, are of like mind on this, is that first off, to get housing, uh, normally leases are signed at the first of every month. So if you arrive, say, on October 15, uh, you first thing you need to do is get a social insurance number. You've got to get your driver's license changed over. Uh, you've got a whole lot of work to do. Just in terms of rehabilitation, you've got to get to know the community that you're living in, just understand the neighborhoods and bus routes and so on and so forth. So you've got some time, and then that may roll over into the following month. So you're not really able, in many cases, to get an apartment for until November 1st, if everything is working out fine. So what I want to report to you is that, on average now, the temporary accommodation stay for a Ukrainian family arriving in Newfoundland Labrador is 28 days. And that's not a terrible thing. They come, this is, they come from trauma. There will be some who may require longer stays. Longer because their circumstances are very different. They may have come from a direct war zone. They may, there may be some additional issues, concerns that have to be dealt with. Their language skills may be a little uh, less than what the workplace would demand, uh, an average workplace might demand. So we'll work with them. Ukrainians want to get out into the workplace. Why? If, if you really want to know why, if, if, if you need to boil it down to this, they don't come with federal supports. They don't come with uh, any additional supports. When they arrive here, except for what the government of Newfoundland and Labrador is somewhat uniquely offering, they are on their own. And that's why they have to get out. They've got to get work right away. They're on their own on this. And that's why I think Newfoundlanders and Labradorians should be very proud of themselves. We recognized. We recognize very early. Not everybody can stand on their own two feet immediately. We will not let these Ukrainians be da- uh, let them alone and let and leave them to their own uh, to their own circumstances for to sink or swim. We've stood by them and will continue to stand with Ukraine. Where are we getting the twenty eight day number? That's from the Association for New Canadians. They track all of this. This is this is data. They run the program. We uh, we uh, we deal directly with the Association of New Canadians in terms of managing our temporary accommodations, uh, our workforce development, our workforce searches, and who else would you want to get doing this? But the experts the people who know what's happening on the ground, know what it's like to be a former refugee fleeing from a war zone, fleeing into a place where you've, uh, you know, you have little experience. The Association for New Canadians informs us every step of the way on every aspect of this, and they have been phenomenal. 
Appreciate the time, Minister. We're off to the news. All the best to you, Gallo. Take Thanks. care, Bug. Bye-bye. That's uh, Jerry Byrne, the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, Vic wants to respond to the comments you heard from uh, Peter Fenwick. Also wants to talk about Hockey Canada. Lots there. And Wanda, talking about the uh, upcoming Leukemia Lymphoma, Lymphoma Society of Canada walk. Okay, don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Tracy. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thanks. How about you? Good. Okay. My issue is, uh, or my concern is for the income of seniors. Um, this is going to sound a bit confusing, so just stay with me. Uh, years ago, I used to work with income support, and basically, once a person got to be 65, believe it or not, once they got their old age pension, their their income was more than what they would have received on income support. And then probably about 20 years ago, the government got really sticky about making sure that people applied for whatever income that they had to go along with their income support. So if you were eligible for Canada Pension, when you were 60, you had to apply for it. But what that does, just say, and I'll use my brother as an example because it'll make things a whole lot clearer. He worked when he was in his 20s, 30s, and 40s, but when he got into his 50s, he got sick and he, and he had to stop work. So then, because of the type of job he had, he ended up going on income support. So once he turned 60, he was forced by the provincial government to apply for Canada Pension uh, because he had earnings before and, and was eligible for Canada Pension. But when you apply for Canada Pension when you're 60, you only get 64% of it. And you get that 64% of it for the rest of your life. So for my brother, instead of the provincial government saying, we're not gonna make you uh, apply for that benefit until you're 65, once he turns 65, he's eligible for 100% of his um, Canada pension benefits. So, and, and I guess the easiest way to explain it is just say if he had to wait until he was 65 to get his canned pension and yeah. his amount was $200 a month, he would get that $200 a month until he passed. But because you have to apply for it now when, for whatever reason, you have to get income support uh, at 60, you only get 64% of it, so which is $126 a month. So, Tracy, is this all in relation to the most recent 10% uh, bump in income support and 10% no. bump in seniors' benefit? No, no, it's not really. It's just, it's just Patty, is that like, and I guess for me, I used to work in income support, and and I realized that you know we were told at some point in time, I used, to, you know, until they became really sticky. I never ever made anybody apply for Canada Pension until they got 65 and then they came off our program. But then they got really, I guess, particular with the government and, and made everybody to search out every single source of income that you had to offset what they're getting. But the sad reality is by doing this, what what we're doing is because of people's poor circumstances that they had to go on income support 
through sickness or illness between the ages of 16 and 65 we're further putting them into poverty because they will they will still receive instead of getting a hundred percent of their Canada pension benefits at, at 65 because they had to apply at 60 they're only getting 64% of it I, I know it sounds really confusing um, and I only it only struck me when I went to a um, retirement session because many of us who are retiring some of us take our benefits out at at 60 and, and stuff like that and for those of us who have a pension fair enough but if you don't have a pension to rely on and you have to unfortunately take out your Canada pension benefits before you're able to access 100% of them you're always going to be missing um, about 35% of that Canada pension benefit once you turn 65. I'm, and I'm doing my level best to follow. I know, I know. It's it's really, really confusing. But this has always been the way, I think, was the point or the question I was going to ask. The, the point is by making people who have worked their whole lives, who because of illness or whatever had to go on income support, by making them apply for Canada pension benefits between the ages of 60 and 65, we are further putting them into um, low income because they will always receive that lower benefit for the rest of their lives. If the provincial government left them alone between 60 and 65, once they turn 65, they're eligible for 100% of the benefits. But, but by making them apply early, we're always taking monies from them that they're eligible for from the federal government, which is no different to the provincial government. Okay, so let me see if I can wrap this up as a I summary. No, I, I'm just, I'm just, just, I'm going to say something. Then you tell me whether or not I'm actually following along. Okay. Okay. So an early application from CPP, regardless if I'm 62 or 65, I'll get that lower amount regardless of my age. So once I hit 65 and I'm eligible for 100% of my contributions, yeah, I don't get it because I applied no. at 62. Right. Right. Okay. Because, because basically what the federal government is saying is you're not eligible for that because we've paid you out five years early. And I only realized this because I went to a retirement session. So, so a lot of people with pensions say, well, I'm going to take mine out as soon as I'm 60. And that's great because, you know, we got pensions and stuff like that. But when you're only relying on income support or your old age pension or your Canada pensions benefits, to to because you had to apply for it early because income support told you if you don't we're cutting you off those poor individuals are penalized for that for the rest of their lives instead of the provincial government saying hey we're going to leave you alone we're going to help you for these five years and once you turn 65 now you're suddenly eligible for 100 percent of your Canada pension for the rest of your life and you and we're reducing that amount of poverty what i don't quite understand about this is like the our reference and i know it's not your words paying me out five years earlier because 
that always implies that there's a set amount of time for you to receive one benefit or another. Yeah. When in fact, I could be dead at 64. I could be dead at 94. So paying me out early doesn't really pass any smell test in my mind because there is no set date for CPP recipients. You know, you get it when you get it, and you get it until you die. So who knows who's going to die? So an early payout, I know that's not your words. That's just how it kind of works in practical terms. But none of that makes any sense because I might be fortunate enough to live to be the ripe old age of 100, where someone else who got applied at 62 might not make it to 70. So I don't really quite understand how they're constituting a early payout consequence. I don't understand that either, but I know what can the pension benefits said that if you take it out to 60, you're eligible for 64%. If you take it out at 65, you're eligible for 100%. If you wait until you're 70, you can get uh, 143%. Now, no one's going to wait until they're 70. No, well, it's unlikely to be uh, very few, depending on what kind of job you have and that kind of stuff, right, uh, right, or self-employed, what have you. But just, so, and again, for clarification, so they're being encouraged to apply, or they're they told to, that's their last they, option, they, or they, they have, have no to. choice? Once you turn 60, just say, just say you worked, I don't know, 25 years, and sadly, for some reason, you turn 58 and you end up on income support. Once you turn 60 years old, the computer zones in on you and it tells your case manager to send you a letter. You have 30 days to apply for Canada Pension, Canada Pension Benefits to see if you're eligible to offset um, the income that you receive from the provincial government. So by doing that, you you only receive 64% of your eligible amount that okay. if you were left alone until you're 65. Got it. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure I do. <laughs> I know. I know it's really confusing, and I really apologize to listeners. No, it's not. It's not your apology to need. You don't have to apologize to anyone because, you know, these are important matters. So people, it's just like everything else we talk about. Going into situations with your eyes wide open, government officials at both levels understanding what the implications are long term. It's right. one thing to say the caseworker will send a letter and here's your next option. Yeah. But we also have to do the cost benefit analysis of what that really means for the individual. Because likely, if you're receiving two thirds of something as opposed to 100% of something, somewhere down the line, some of those shortfalls are going to fall back on who? Those exact same two levels of government who put you in that predicament in the first place. Yeah. And sadly, I guess for, you know, a lot of people have in their mind that, okay, a lot of income support people have worked. They've worked 20 and 30 years and for whatever reason in their late 50s or something end up on income support. You know, they don't have a pension to turn to when they're 65 or or whatever. So so when you're taking a third of their Canada pension away from them once once they turn 65 and they have no other means to to obtain money or earnings we're further putting that population in poverty and not only that it's federal money so even even with the it's with the provincial government whatever money that's paid out for income support part of that is cost shared with the federal government anyway yeah. So, so I don't know why the provincial government just don't leave people alone till they're sixty, you know, between sixty and sixty-five, to to scrape back the little bit of Canada pension that's actually paid in, and let everybody get it when they're sixty-five. Okay. So, last question. I really do have to go. When do I get one hundred percent of my CPP? Sixty-five or seventy? Six, 
65. Right, 65, uh, that's the number, is it? Okay, yeah. I want to make, uh, make sure that I'm following along. I try to understand all of these different pots of money the best I can, but of course I need other people who have worked through it or have lived it or experienced it to help me figure it out. Uh, good to have you on, Tracy. Thanks for this. Okay, bye. Take care, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Uh, don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, two. Wanda, you're on the air. Hi there, Patty. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thanks. How about you? Good. This is my first time calling, so I'm a bit nervous. But any case, my granddaughter was diagnosed two years ago, or three, oh, well, two and a half years ago, 2020, with uh, leukemia. We've been walking now for a couple of years, and we're walking again this year. Uh, we raised over $15,000 as a family only yes, last year. So this year, my granddaughter is um, the honorary hero, and we're raising money again this year. Fantastic. So we're looking to see if anybody wants to buy some cool uh, Cancer Sucks toques, um, um, hats. And uh, we got some cards. We got bookmarks. We just had a big fundraiser down at um, Kitty Vitty Brewery. Uh, uh, what's his face? Fancy um, plays. Justin Fancy. Yes, Justin Fancy. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I'm a little bit nervous, so I'm trying to remember all the names. No problem. Piatto's Pizza is a big shout-out to them because they've been with us ever since. Uh, helping us raise some money, $5,000 or a couple of thousand dollars each year. Uh, Fogtown uh, Barber last year helped us out with these cool T-shirts, uh, Cancer Sucks. So this year we're doing the hats. And, yeah, and there's some tickets that you can buy. They are uh, anywhere Pell flies. So they're $5 each, too. I think it's great. So uh, explain to us how the hero achievement is uh, arrived at. Pardon me? Uh, you made mention of someone belongs to you is the hero this yes, year? Yes, my granddaughter. She's the honorary hero this year. She's only eight, and her name is Abigail. Tell us a bit about Abigail. Well, last year, uh, 2020, she was diagnosed on Mother's Day with uh, leukemia. And, uh, yeah, so it was a rough time. My daughter... Uh, mm, now I'm getting... T now it's getting hard. <laughs> I understand. Take your time. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, so my dad died nine years ago, too, with leukemia. So we started walking before Abigail got diagnosed. So as a family, we walked for a couple of years, and then Abigail got diagnosed. So we started walking with her. So then we raised the $15,000 last year as a family only. And then this year, she got uh, honorary hero because she got to ring the bell in August of Cancer Free, hopefully. It's amazing stuff, and I can only imagine the emotions uh, when we're talking about family members at that age. So good on you, and good on her, Abigail, I should have said. Good on Abigail for being this year's hero, and we wish her nothing but the best of health, and hopefully big success in raising funds and awareness for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society Canada Walk. Yes, thank you. And we'd like for people to follow. So if you go to Team Abigail on the Facebook page, or it's Stronger Than Strong on our Twitter feed, and it's Team uh, Abigail on Instagram. And Abigail is spelled A-B-I-G-A-L-E. Wonderful. Say hello to Abigail for me. I will. Thanks hey. very much, Patty. Thanks, Take Wanda. Care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, before we get to the news, let's go to line number three. 
The Liberal member for Virgil Lapoil is Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology, Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you? Not too bad, sir. You? Not too bad. Uh, there's a lot, I guess, to talk about. Uh, I was at the Econext conference this morning, which was exciting, talking about energy. Hopefully, I can get a chance to briefly address uh, the efforts that are going on at home. Uh, but I, what I did want to do, if, if you'll allow me, is just to talk a little bit about wind development in the province and specifically some of the questions that uh, uh, that came up yesterday about favoritism and, and things like that, which I... I get why the questions are being asked, but I, I think my job is to uh, tell everybody what's actually going on in the process. First question it will be, what is the conversation between you and Premier Fury or Premier Fury's involvement in the World Energy GH2 proposal? Well, basically, my conversation with him... Uh, if anything, it's been very minimal as towards direction. I've been given a, an extreme amount of leeway, I guess, as a minister and for a department to come forward with the plans that we are doing. So it's certainly not top-down direction in this case. It's you guys go figure it out, and then we go through the regular process, which is committee and cabinet and things like that. And that's why I'm really happy with the process that we have unveiled, which I would like to think has been you know, fair across the board. Everybody, all the proponents I've talked to have certainly indicated that they like the setup, which is not first come, first serve. It's not uh, who you are. It's basically put your interest in and then go along those lines. So I haven't had that conversation. I have had conversations with, my God, dozens of proponents because everybody wants a chance to come in and talk to us and tell us what their goals are. So, And I think that would probably be normal in this case. Fair enough, because... You know, whether or not people want to put a lot of stock in the story from All Newfoundland and Labrador, that's up to them individually, and they can voice their opinion on this program. But the whole thought about who gets what based on who knows who has long dogged politics. And in this province, it has been absolutely a problem. It's a small population, certainly when we talk about those at the elite business class and the business dealings and opportunities for government. So everybody, including the Premier, and I won't get you to speak for him, but everybody understands why these concerns are voiced so loudly is because we have a history and a track record of it. Absolutely. Like, I don't, uh, and I said this, is, it's funny, I spoke pretty extensively to the media yesterday, but not everybody gets to see it during a Scrum, but I, I spoke pretty extensively about the fact that I don't begrudge media asking these questions, and I don't begrudge the opposition asking questions. I'm sure if, again, I know it's difficult when your personal life crosses into the public domain, and, and don't get me wrong, I think anybody would find that frustrating, but the issue I took with it was that it was being impugned that my integrity was compromised, that I'm doing something to give somebody a favor, and you know what? That pisses me off because it's not true, and the black and white of this is that nobody has been given anything. So it's not about the questions. I think people want to know and deserve to know that to see scrutiny, to see that things are happening because they are appropriate and right. Uh, and that's part of my job is to say, look, there's questions, but at the end of the day, I can back up everything uh, that we've done. It's, it's there in writing. It's there in paper. It's there in policy. And, and the proof is in the pudding in the sense that we came forward with a policy back in July that put everybody at the same starting point. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. You had to put forward a plan, say where you want to go, and as we go through a process, which, again, I know I'm going to get questioned on the entire time. It's a brand-new industry, and as I should, but it should stand up to that test. So it should. But, you know, and then you add into it, even comments coming directly from Mr. Risley himself. He says he anticipates this to get the green light. So when you put everything in combination, <laughs> it, it just becomes difficult for people to well, sift through. Part of this, too, is the fact that certain proponents, and World is one of them, that they have, you know, they've, 
taken a, they, they've done a lot of interviews. They've talked a lot, and certainly I think they've caused, in many cases, with their public commentary, because they're excited, because they want to get it done. They're, you know, they've they've spoken a lot, and in many cases, I've had to react to that. I mean, there's a lot of conversation, especially on the West Coast, before I even announced the policy, and it's hard to say how things are going to go when you haven't even unveiled your policy. But at, and and again. I said this yesterday as well. I've had a million proponents, whether it be mining or tech or resource, you name it, say, we're going to do this. Well, you listen, you fill your boots and say what you're going to do and how you're going to get it done. That decision lies with us. So they can say what they want, but at the end of the day, my behind is on the line here. I need to ensure that everything is done according to plan, above board. It has to stand up to scrutiny. Do you think I want to spend the rest of my time having people accuse you of wrong, or me of wrongdoing? That's not on. So, again, Mr. Risley or anybody can say I think it's going to get done. Well, we'll determine that, and when we determine it, it will be done in according with a, a process that everybody can look at. How do we ensure that the people in the area have their say? We spoke with Peter Fenwick earlier, and he says the polling in their community says the vast majority completely opposed to it. So it's one thing for environmental assessments and the to and fro between the proponent and the government. How do we ensure the people on the south, on the south coast or in the Stephenville area are heard? Absolutely. So that's a part of this. I think whenever you do anything new, you need to have community involvement. There's a social license component to this. I mean, you can pass all the scrutiny you want and and abide by all the rules, but if you have communities that are opposed, then it's going to be hard to to move forward and to develop. So look, I would say that, again, if you're a proponent, you have a duty to meet with communities that are going to be affected, to talk to them, to explain what you're going to do. Uh, As a government, our job is to educate people, to talk about it. Look, I absolutely am a believer in the possibilities here. I am a believer in what can happen. I've seen it happen before. I've been representing Ramia for 11 years, who've had wind towers there, the entirety of it. So I get that pe- some people have opposition. It's about figuring out why there's opposition. Some of it, some of it is not. Uh, I, I wouldn't put any reality to it. It's not real. I've heard some people, not Mr. Fenwick, who I get along with quite well. I've had some people saying, "Well, we're just not doing it," but they're not backing that up with a good reason. That being said, there are good questions out there. I think our job is to be there to help talk to people, explain it, and work through that. Because you know what? Again, no different than we were working on cannabis uh, legalization. Brand new process. People worry. People wonder, what are the effects? Well, that's what we're there for. We better answer that or we're not going to have success. I do know you want to talk about some of the uh, issues that came from the conference this morning. We can do it only if you can be put on hold so I can get a newscast in quickly. Uh, you know what? Absolutely. I'm up for that. Okay, let's do that. I'll put the minister on hold. We'll hear what happened at that conference. When we come back, we'll speak with Minister Parsons, and then we're going to talk about the new plan on behalf of the provincial government and the Department of Health Community Services to add physicians' assistance to the doctors to ease or shoulder some of the time they spend, for instance, on administrative duties. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's rejoin the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology on one. Minister Parsons, you're back on the air. Yeah, thanks, uh, Patty. So this morning, as I mentioned earlier, I was at the Econex conference, which is something that, to be honest with you, it's it's growing in importance every year. I mean, I remember my first year, just to see the sheer... Uh, size growth in terms of numbers and attendees like they literally sold out this year and to those 
people that aren't aware, Econex is you know, basically the provincial advocate and leader for the acceleration of clean growth in the province. So today they're talking about hydrogen, they're talking about wind, uh, talking about advances as it relates to mining, as it relates to our offshore and including offshore wind. So it's a pretty big uh, agenda with a lot of a lot of players in the province, a lot of people from outside the province. So it's exciting because the biggest part of it is that there's just so much opportunity. There is, but like everything, especially in its infancy, you know, we don't even have anywhere to turn for best practices. We don't have anywhere to turn for worst-case scenarios and how they presented themselves and what government did to maybe, you know, trip themselves up. So how do we approach that? Because we understand mining and oil and forestry. We don't understand things like green hydrogen. So, for instance, what's your role as the minister responsible to go beyond the proposal and the proponent to look at other jurisdictions, to look to Germany, to find out what this really does work like, what, what it looks like, where the benefits are for us because it's so brand new that it's hard to know where to start to protect ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, that's part of what's really exciting. And at the same time, that's the part that keeps me up because it's, it is brand new. It has been done elsewhere, but even hydrogen worldwide is still so new that to fully understand it, I don't think anybody can say that they have a complete hand on it. I mean, even in the last 12 months with what's going on in Europe as it relates to energy poverty, that's changed the dynamic. Where I think where we fit into this is, number one, we've recognized that we do have a role to play. I mean, Newfoundland and Labrador can be a leader with all the different things you need as it relates to the wind resource, the land, water, port you name it. The second part is we've been looking all around the world and throughout the rest of Canada and the U.S. to see, okay, what have they done here? Uh, and, and, you know, there is a lot to take into it. Then it's, well, how do we insert ourselves into this? And there's a fine line. One of the big things that scares me is that people do sometimes compare this to oil and gas. And the reality is it's not going to be oil and gas. It's a different it's a different setup entirely. I mean, there's a huge construction phase to this. We're going to see a lot of opera- a lot of jobs created with that, a lot of construction. But later on, it's not as labor intensive. But again, I like to think that it's going to be sustainable. Then you get into, well, how do we fund it? In most places, when they brought in hydrogen or wind, it was about greening their grid. We're not in the same – we don't have that same concern given that we're already at 85% renewable. But how do we support them? I, I don't like to think that it's a case of we're going to take equity in it, but how do we share in profits and move forward? So, look, it's there's a lot still left to do. Uh, if anything, I want to set it up so that we're trying to be uh, supportive to help people set up so that we do get it established here as opposed to elsewhere. But at the same time, I'd like to think that we can learn from how things change and protect ourselves so that we're not locked in long-term and giving away benefits. This is a bit of a... Uh, a strange question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. Given this proposal and the end customer being Germany, we're now also dabbling in things that are kind of foreign to us. And that's we're now part of these international affairs, international relationships. We've seen just how confusing it's been and so problematic it's been, like uh, sabotage of Nord Stream and stuff. Do we factor these things in? Because this is a geopolitical play as much as it is an energy play. Absolutely. And that's why, I mean, sometimes we love uh, to just talk about how, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador, we're going to do it on our own. But the reality is we are a part of the Federation. This is, in many cases, it's uh, Canadian relations with Germany, Canadian relations with the states or any other country that's looking for our energy. So we are going to have to work uh, with the federal government when it comes to these things. Now, I haven't lost too much sleep over, you know, the possibility of, you know, we talk about foreign intrigue or sabotage or things like that. But we are entering into 
the situation here where we are dealing with German consulates. We are dealing with U.S. consulates. Um, but to be honest, my, my biggest concern, that's not one that does consume too much mind attention. My biggest thing is that do you really want to set something up for failure? Do you really want to set something up where five years people look back and say, man, you really messed that up? That's what sort of keeps us on track. And the other thing, going back to all of this, every project, everything is I want to set something up or be a part of setting something up where people look back and say, I get why they did that. That makes sense. And we see why they did that as opposed to having people scratching their heads and wondering and maybe just, I guess, uh, inferring, inferring that certain things are being done. What's one thing we could do to protect ourselves? Is it as simple as lease of Crown land, establish some yep. sort of royalty on water, or you know, security around ammonia plants, what have you? What's one the key issue to protect the people of the province who at this point hopefully will not be involved with their own tax dollar, but how do we protect ourselves? Number one, give so us the first couple, step. A couple things. One, the, the biggest thing I would say is that we don't want to price ourselves out of the market, so we don't want to be so greedy that we actually stifle it and people go elsewhere because we're trying to get too much. The reality is that in many cases, like I said, every other jurisdiction is subsidizing this. That's not where our heads are. Uh, so I, I'd like to think there's things we can do to work with industry to set up. Uh, but again, going back to, I'll just use Crown Land for an example. I'd like to think that we will work with companies as it relates to Crown Land, but it's not going to be without condition. We're not just going to give away one of our greatest resources, our land, without knowing that we are protected, without knowing that there's conditions there, without knowing that if people don't live up to their end of the bargain, uh, that we're not going to be able to take back what what we need. So that's one of the things we're keeping in mind. Then, like you say, there's the other natural resources that are required. Like, what is the pricing regime that you're going to put on the wind? What is the pricing regime that you put on water? So these are all things we're doing. The biggest thing here is that, look, the market hasn't been totally established uh, for this. So I think we need to allow ourselves the ability not to have long-term lock-ins, keeping in mind, again, that companies need certainty. I mean, they before they invest billions of dollars, they want certainty. We're cognizant of that. We want to work with that. But again, a guiding factor to all of this for me is, uh, you know, making sure we do the right things now, but allow ourselves the opportunity and the off-ramps to protect ourselves when circumstances change. I do have to get going. And regardless of what anyone thinks about electric vehicle, Canada is the only democratic world on the face of the earth with every single component for an electric, uh, electric vehicle battery here. When the government federally talked about it, they only mentioned Northern Ontario, Northern Quebec. We're a part of that conversation. We'll probably see if you have some time next week to talk about it because, boy, we talk opportunity. That was bigger than hydrogen. Absolutely. And you know what? That's a full-on conversation, so we can save that. But we do have a huge role to play in that. Before I go, Patty, if I could just throw a shout-out. I know Brian Button uh, was on earlier. Again, uh, a huge shout-out to the mayors and the town staff uh, out on the southwest coast. we still got a long way to go, but uh, it gives me hope when we've got such amazing volunteers out there leading the way and uh, just really really proud of them 100 percent. thank you sir take care the vice minister andrew parsons break time when we come back yvette coffee who's the president of the registered nurses union of newfoundland and labrador to talk about the new physician assist program don't go away now we'll come back let's go line number five say good morning to the president of the registered nurses union of nl that's yvette coffee good morning yvette you're on the air good morning patty thanks for taking my call happy to do it well, I'd like to talk about nurse practitioners, Patty. Um, you know, we've heard us out in the media over the past uh, couple of years now talking about um, wanting the meaningful discussions with government about nurse practitioner funding models. We have nurse practitioners here in this province uh, who are independent professionals 
who do not need any oversight from any other healthcare provider who work autonomously. We've been lobbying government for years about opening nurse practitioner-led clinics under our publicly funded healthcare system. And especially in light of the fact that we have over 135,000 residents who do not have a primary health care provider, either a nurse practitioner or family physician. So I'm very baffled hearing the announcement that came out yesterday from the minister talking about introducing another health care provider, physician assistants, to assist physicians. This is going to take some time. We don't even have physician assistants in this province or or regulations around physician assistants. And I'm just baffled. I, you know, we are advocating for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. We have expertise here with nurse practitioners. And yet we have yet to have any meaningful discussions with this government, even though the minister did come out publicly on the OCM some months ago and say that they were looking at this. Uh, and it's going no- nowhere. And we, frankly, I can't understand why. How does it work elsewhere? Because physician assistants aren't something new. If the effort is to bring them into the fold to ease, for instance, you know, renewing prescriptions, take on some administrative tasks. Hopefully that means doctors can spend more time with patients. So where is the downside to adding this level, this different uh, healthcare professional to the fold? Because they do it elsewhere. Because I don't know how they work because I've never seen one before. So I do understand that uh, physician assistants have been introduced in Nova Scotia recently. Uh, and, of course, they had to have uh, regulations and that put in place for that to happen. It didn't just happen overnight. And, yes, we know there's a physician shortage as well. And, you know, bring it on. Whatever providers we can get into the system to help with patients. But we have a solution here that this government has yet to come to the table to have meaningful discussion about. And I, I don't understand it. They're there. They're ready. Um they have the credentials, they have the expertise, and I don't understand why these discussions are not happening. I don't understand why they're not happening either, to be honest with you. You know, add to it the NLMA, uh, not pleased with the amendments to the Medical Act, say there's going to be a duplication of work, loss, loss of autonomy for doctors, more power in the minister's office, then you don't include your group in these conversations. I mean, the slow, the, the slow moving glacial pace of government will always baffle me. If we're talking about about nurse practitioners or LPNs or social workers or pharmacists or whoever, to not allow them to do what they're trained to do, to be a contributor to the system as opposed to the territorial issues that we face all the time, I just can't wrap my mind around it. Do you think it's a matter of who has the loudest voice, who has the most powerful lobby uh, response inside a government? Because I don't get it. If it was left up to me, I'd let anyone who's trained, accredited, and licensed to do whatever they're trained to do to let them do it. Period. End of story. I wouldn't care if the doctors were mad or the nurses were mad or anybody else. Do you happen to have any better insight than I do as to why these changes take so long and some people are left out of the consultations? I am baffled just as much as you are. With 135,000 people who have nowhere to go except for emergency departments uh, to have their medical needs met, and we're hearing all those stories every single day, about overrun and overcrowded emergency departments, people being told, unless you're, uh, you have a life-threatening issue, you know, you're not getting seen here tonight. And we're hearing that every day. 
it baffles me why this government is not taking action and utilizing the people. And to your point about LPNs, RNs, MPs, everybody should be working to their full scope of practice. The territorialism that goes on in this province, well, not even just this province, it goes on everywhere. That has to, that has to go. Patients have to be our number one priority. We have a solution here, and government needs to act to optimize the use of nurse practitioners in primary health care in this province. Healthcare outcomes should be the first go-to measure of how successful the program is, or pardon me, the system is. And if we lose sight of that, and we talk about incentives and retention bonuses and uh, recruitment, and look, all of those things are important, but they all pale in comparison to the importance of positive healthcare outcomes, because that's the intention of healthcare. You know, so far it's a reactive system. We don't do much to keep you well. We just treat you when you're sick. But that's all we should be measuring is the positive outcomes. I know you have to worry about your members and their work-life balance and the state of mind and the toxic workplace, but all of those things get addressed if we improve outcomes, period. Exactly. And, you know, I've already heard from many nurse practitioners and registered nurses who are totally feeling undervalued, disrespected, and they're really, really upset. And we have nurse practitioners actually talking about saying enough is enough, we're not respected, we're not valued and looking elsewhere to move out of this province. And we cannot afford to lose not one person out of the healthcare system right now. No, absolutely not. I appreciate the time this morning, Yvette. Thank you very much. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yvette Coffey, the president of the Registered Nurses Union of the province. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.